Welcome to Just a GP podcast. My name is Ashley Broomfield and I have my co-hosts Rebecca Hoffman and Charlotte Hespie with me today. Today we're delighted to be joined again by Kang Sing Lim, our favourite on the podcast. And today we're going to be talking about value versus volume and the asymmetry of benefit. But first we will start with a highlight of the week. King, what was your highlight? Thanks, Ashley. Thanks for having me on again. It's always fantastic to talk to you and, and Charlotte and Rebecca. But the highlight of my week is interesting because it probably plays into the whole question of value and volume because it was a great outcome from something we've been working up with our practice pharmacist. And this is on post-hospital discharge, where we often discharge somebody's coming to us electronically And all we can do is wait until someone pops off on our doorstep. So we've worked out a system by which our pharmacist can contact the patients before they come in, reconcile the medications, go through all the questions and have it all pre-packaged and ready to go. So when the patient comes in, we have a much more efficient and hopefully a much more valuable consultation. So we're still refining it, but that's a really exciting thing that we're now doing. It does sound exciting. And what about you, Beck? Hi, and I'm really excited that my avocado tree for the first year ever actually has teeny tiny little avocados on it. So now I actually have to work out how to stop the possums and the children and the other animals from consuming these teeny tiny little avocados and hope that they actually get enough water and sunshine to and I don't know when they're ripe, to become ripe and consumable. But I've enjoyed watching it grow and finally maybe produce something. It's called net. I do need to go and buy a net. (laughs) I have something to say on that that's not a highlight. I will say it's my husband's low light in that he went to the garden to harvest the carrots and he saw all these little holes around the carrots Something has like dug in and eaten the carrots from underneath. So the tops of the carrots were still visible, but there was no carrot attached to it. (laughs) It was just like all of the carrots are gone. So maybe we need nets too. What was your highlight, Charlotte? Well, I'll put in, if we're going to do gardens, I'll do a garden highlight. My garden highlight is that I have gotten a hive of native bees up and running and I'm so enjoying going out into the garden and just seeing them come out and just be busy and happy. And um, I just think about all the pollinating that's happening. And it's nice because they're native. And it's funny, they're so little and they've got stripy bottoms. So they're very cute, blue stripy bottoms. And they're blue, but the native bees are stingless, yeah, aren't they? Yeah, they're stingless, but they can bite you if you frighten them or, you know. <sighs> So, and apparently the the exciting thing to watch out for is that they can have big hive versus hive fights. So often a swarm of another lot of bees can come and you can then witness an an amazing battle happening with then lots and lots of dead bees as they establish dominance. But apparently it means you get a bit of good crossbreeding between the the hives. Anyway, we haven't had that yet. We've just got happy bees. (laughs) I think this week my highlight would have been the weekend. Last Sunday, the women from the Garbi tribe, who are Gumbangia people, invited other women in the community to come and join them for a 
a women's ceremonial day. So I had their ceremonial day the day before and then they invited other women from the community to join them on the Sunday. And it was just a really beautiful day and I felt really privileged to share in that day for them and really grateful that they had opened it up to all women in the community and it was a really, really special, a really special vibe and, you know, I know that the community was going through some grief and loss at the time so it it felt very warm and opening for them to open up that sort of, you know, their special place and and welcome other people onto that. That was my highlight. So without further ado, what do we mean by value versus volume? It's a really interesting term because it gets used so much these days. And I'll go so far as to say that sometimes that term value seems to get weaponized against us. But value versus volume is that concept that we should be doing what actually provides value. And of course, the corollary is not doing the things which don't provide value. So you could break it down into a couple of elements. One of them is that you try to do things more efficiently. Second one is you try to avoid waste, so avoiding doing the things you shouldn't be doing. But another key element of that value question is actually being able to demonstrate that what is being done actually provides value. Now, the problem with all of these things I've just stated is that it's the one which always comes up, and that is what does value actually mean for each person? So value for a patient is one thing. Value for a doctor might be another thing. Value for a health system might be another thing. And of course, value for a health insurer might be another thing again. And so depending on where you sit in this, that might be how you measure value. So if you're a health insurer, you might say, let's measure value by what is the lowest cost way to to get this outcome. And if the outcome is something simple, so let's say something really simple like a knee replacement, you might just say, this is the total cost of giving someone a new prosthetic knee. And it goes from this point to this point, and that's it. But the question is, is that actually truly value for everyone? Is that value for the patient? So if a patient is kicked out of hospital earlier because that's value, then is that actually a better outcome? If a patient has a higher readmission rate, does get counted into that as well? And then how do we measure value when it's something which is less clear-cut? And that's one of the problems with general practice, which is that we're often getting measured, or rather the value is often measured, by metrics which are determined by others in the system. So we, that's how we come up with crazy metrics, such as what is the average number of visits to a GP in a 12-month period? And when you really look at it, what actually does that measure? Does that actually measure anything at all? So it's just a process measure. Other ones which are done are things such as have, uh, and if we look at the quality incentive, the PIPQI measures, the PIPQI measures include a whole lot of things which are actually not necessarily measures of quality, at least not at this point. So this is really where we come down to the question of what does value mean? So ideally, value is something which we would say, and this is now talking from my perspective as a general practitioner, but also I think all of our perspective as health providers, and I hope that partly is my perspective as someone who is a health consumer from time to time, and no doubt as I get older, will become a bigger health consumer as time goes on. And that is, what is value from the consumer or patient's perspective? And it is going to be a combination of, are we getting bang for our buck? But what does that bang look like? And so for us, it is, we really should be looking at this theme, 
which is how do we put all of that together? I think that New South Wales Health actually is quite a nice little framework for that because the New South Wales Health value-based health framework is a re-articulation of the quadruple aim. So it talks about the concept of improved patient experience, improved population level health outcomes, sustainable and efficient cost, and of course that fourth one, which is improved provider experience throughout the system. And so if we consider how we measure value, rather than going with what we often see with value-based healthcare frameworks, which are really another way of saying pay for performance, we probably should be looking at a much more three-dimensional, a multi-dimensional view of what value might look like. And that means looking at value from everyone's perspective, the provider, the patient, the health system as a whole, and of course, avoidance of waste. And I'm going to throw just one more thing in there because that's going to come up as well sooner or later. And that is actually looking at things from an environmental perspective as well, which is, are we actually being good citizens in what we do? Because you know, all of those single use items, while there is value in doing it from one level, there is a question about the value it's going to provide to the society as a whole as time goes on. Yeah, I remember I went to a lecture from a guy in the UK on what are the biggest contributors of general practice to climate problems or emissions. And the first thing was how we practice medicine. You know, the choice to prescribe a something that has to go through production processes to again travel and you know, the packaging and all of the fuel that it takes the planes to deliver the drugs to the country and for then that person to be on that medication versus, you know, a lifestyle approach where encouraging that person to walk to work has a whole sort of flow-on effect in terms of the community and in the family unit and other people or the workplace so that the unseen measures underlying an intervention a kind of, you know, have this sort of butterfly effect. And then the second one was staff and patient travel. And it wasn't until you sort of got down to that latter point about the single-use items that was actually, you know, the top two was travel and the way we practice medicine, which was really interesting. Yeah. I think there's a lot to be said in that because even if we consider the whole concept of efficiency and avoidance of waste, we do find that there are many things in the system which are done, which really don't have to be done the way that they're done and are in fact quite likely inefficient and well, wasting a lot of dollars. And I interrupt at that point because I resonate with it and I just wanted to add in the Ashul Gawande work, which absolutely talks about how we as individuals, you know, we have our own little ways of doing things and we will set things up. And we work alongside other people and we each do our own thing without actually referencing each other. And we become quite expensive because we don't actually streamline and unify to work as a team. And, you know, the classic was the knee replacement bits that he sort of talked about where every surgeon in these private hospitals was using something different, which cost the hospital a fortune. The minute they all just said, We're going to use this particular one unless there's a really special reason for you to need a different one. It saved them thousands of dollars with no difference in outcome for the patient. And really, the only people whose noses were put out of joint were the surgeons because they were being told they couldn't have a choice. And it's an interesting thing, that whole thing about, 
you know, when we're being told this is a better way to do it and this is how we'll do it, well, not necessarily a better way, but a streamlined systems actually means that we can do it better than saying you can individually choose exactly how you do something. It's a little confronting, I think, sometimes. How have you found that in your clinical practice, Charlotte, you know, in terms of getting everyone on board with doing the same thing in the same way, if that's sort of the better way to do it? I've, I've heard this term called herding cats. <laughs> <laughs> you set up what you want in a practice. And so remember I used to have these interesting conversations with our most recent past president of the college, Harry Nespelin, who um, ran a practice in a completely different way from me, which was very much about letting everybody do exactly what they wanted to versus in my practice. It's not that you can't practice medicine the way you want to, but we are very systematized. So we record data in the same way. We are accountable to do things. We set the rooms up the same. So it doesn't matter who's working in there. It's there. We use the same kit. When you get a letter in, there's a sort of a certain response. You record a mammogram in the past medical history as an inactive and you put in a reminder. You know, there are things that we do to try and make sure that the patient care across, doesn't matter who sees them, but there's a system. And Harry and I used to have big conversations because he completely disagreed with me. But, you know, when it came down to it, I always reckon I won in a fight with him over it because I could tell him much more stuff about what was happening in our practice and then be able to be able to address it when problems arose, which you just can't do if you're not all doing it in the same way. I'm sure Ken can talk to them more. Oh, absolutely. I think, I mean, I'm, I'm very much along the, or very much in agreement with Charlotte's approach, and that is that doing things the same way doesn't mean we have to behave like automata. It does not mean that we have to do exactly the same thing for every patient because every patient is different. But it does mean having certain underlying systems and certain underlying processes that we all do. And that's a matter of efficiency. It is also a matter of quality because if you are not able to measure things in the same way, then you actually are not able to come out with some way of assessing whether what you're doing is actually making a difference or not. So if we look at how that might be applied in our practice, we tend to use a framework. It's actually a six-point framework, which I won't bore by going through the full six points, but the first point of it actually is about everyone establishing what their pathways of care are, and this is for every major condition. And now that doesn't mean that we have to apply exactly the same thing, but at least everyone knows that we are aiming for this type of measure at the end. So we might say, for example, for someone with cardiovascular disease, this is a blood pressure target, this is a lipid target, this is the sodium intake target, this is the exercise target and so forth. But it's also a way that the whole multidisciplinary team can get together. So our pharmacists, dietitian, exercise physiologists, it's part of that discussion because what that then means is that it actually doesn't matter to some extent who sees the patient along the way. It still means that that same pathway is being followed. I mean, we still have and do try to maintain that continuity of relationship all the way through. But this means it's easier for everyone to pick up where someone else was. And it's also easier for anyone in the team to assess when something was done or not done and whether someone is getting better or worse. And so by having standardized assessment tools. So for example, how do we know whether someone with heart failure or COPD is getting better or worse? And you could go by the traditional method where we all write down, Mrs. Smith looks a bit better today. 
The only problem is that if I'm the next doctor seeing Mr. Smith, it's actually really hard for me to work out whether Mr. Smith actually is or is not objectively better. So we set a number of metrics to it. We say, what is the weight? What is the number of steps they would have walked? What is the walk time for going from the front door to the bedroom, etc. But it's about setting certain metrics which can then be mapped by every user and also then allows us to use our off-site team members, like our off-site nurses, to call the patient before the visit and actually collect that information so that when I'm seeing the patient myself, I actually can see what all these measures are like. So there's a lot to be said for that standardization when it comes to efficiency and in terms of the care that we can produce. And of course, that then comes under the question of uh, value and how do we, is that value to us? I would say, yes, that's valuable to me. Is that valuable to our practice? Yes, it is. Now, is there value to the patient is the next question, because to some extent, we tend to be very uh, medical centric and say, well, if the patient is not going to hospital, there's probably some value there. But of course, we have to find other ways of measuring that as well. So, I mean, this is where I'd be quite interested to hear everyone else's thoughts, because we all have developed our own ways. We're big fans of the patient activation measure on that particular score and using that as a measure of patient value. But we could use other things, net promoter scores are also a good thing as well. But I think it's what's interesting is that we all have to start from that common point. Part of being a team is starting from that common point. Whereas I think one of the problems is that as doctors, we're not actually trained to work as team members. Even in fact, if we think about GP registrars, we're not trained to work as team members. We're trained to work to be a good doctor first. And the team sort of comes second and in sometimes seem to be subservient to rather than true team members. It's an interesting thing because as you were sort of talking, I was doing some dreaming about how we can transform some of the ways in which we interact with our system and what we do in expectations. And I sometimes do get these sort of dreams of what if and if we could actually have everybody, yeah, I suppose, be able to understand that the joy, I think, of also practising medicine with your patient in a, that sort of more value-based care. It's an interesting thing because I think it gets very polluted in terms of the value with when, say, for instance, in the UK, value got tied down by the measures in such a way that the patient no longer mattered. It was all about the measures. So the value care was actually not value care. It was measured care. And, and I think we've got to be really careful not to get lost in the measures for actually improving the quality of the care and, you know, what are the outputs that we're wanting. And how do we measure the relational aspect of care, particularly for our more vulnerable populations, that that might be the biggest component? Yeah, it's a good question because there are actually tools we can use to measure that relationship. And you can either measure the quality of the relationship, you could measure the outcomes of the relationship, or you could just measure, and this is entirely valid, you can actually do simple net promoter scores. So net promoter scores are quite an interesting one. I don't know if anyone's used those or anyone's familiar, but net promoter scores are really that very simple one about saying, would you recommend this doctor slash this practice, this slash whoever, to your family and friends? And if so, why so? And you could then subdivide that. And that promoter score is basically saying how many would recommend you versus how many would not recommend you. So that actually can be a measure. And that is a measure of that relationship. 
You can also measure continuity indexes, and that one's actually not that hard to do. And that is basically how many times a patient attends your practice versus someone else's practice. What is the level of continuity? What percentage of patients see your practice solely? And I do use the word practice as opposed to practitioner, because I do think that we're moving into an age, and I think we have to be realistic about this. We're moving to an age where it's not the solo practitioner, you know, which was traditionally the solo male practitioner whose wife was happy to do all the work and at home and they would spend their whole life seven days a week on call doing everything and I think that's not a realistic aspiration so I think that we have to think about this in terms of how the practice scores on that and then we can also throw in that measure which I mentioned the patient activation measure which is a quite an interesting one because it's a patient reported questionnaire which measures or scores on three domains. And those domains are importance of problems, confidence in managing their problems, and the third one is confidence in self-management of those problems. And when you actually, when you map all of those together in a questionnaire, you actually get a score out of 100, which amazingly enough actually correlates with a patient's hospitalization risk. So we know that if you can improve a patient's activation measure, there's actually a reduction in the hospitalization risk. So we can use this not only as a measure of relationship and the quality of the outcomes from the practice, but actually then as a way of measuring the value to the system by reducing someone's hospitalization risk. So I think that we have to be more sophisticated about measures. And Charlotte, I totally agree about the quaff measures in the UK, the quality outcomes framework, which is not actually outcome measures because most of them were process measures. And if we actually look at similar things such as the US and the HEDIS measures, which a lot of those ones, and I can't remember what the number was for the HEDIS measures, 53 or something like that, but it was very much a lot of it was process-based. You know, have you asked someone whether they smoke or don't smoke? Have you actually counseled them about smoking or not? So the outcome, of course, is have they stopped smoking? But that's not the question which is asked, and that's not what is paid for. And ultimately, then we're talking about value-based systems. It is also that question about what is paid for and who pays for what and whether those are the right values to be uh, those are the right measures to be looking at but i think that um, this is where we have to get more subtle about it and we do have to get into this game because one thing to say is everyone else is getting to the game of measuring healthcare they're measuring what we do in general practice measuring what non-gp specialists do as well which of course you know puts a lot of non-gp specialists no doubt joints but the fact is that the measures are going to happen, and if we don't get involved in the game of measuring what is important and actually leading this, and that's why I'm such a strong advocate for leading this push to value, because we have to lead it ourselves. We have to take our patients on this journey, and we actually have to walk alongside our patients in this, but we also have to take it to the funders of the system and be able to demonstrate that there is a correlation, that if we can provide better value, to patients, as an example, if our patient's PAN score improves, then that is actually a value to the system as a whole. As an interesting measure, we actually did measure PAN scores for all of our patients for a period of time after they've been hospitalized. And nearly everyone dropped their PAN scores after hospitalization. And nearly all of their relatives' PAN scores also dropped as well after an episode of hospitalization, which if you take that through to the next level, would tend to tell you that if you get hospitalized, not only are you going to be at higher risk of rehospitalization, all your family are going to be as well. So that's the thing about how are we going to change that sort of thing and how, in fact, do we make those the measures which matter? 
rather than the ones which are currently being used, which may or may not actually be of, well, may or may not actually measure damage. That probably takes us to discussing this idea of asymmetrical benefit. So the interesting about our system is that thing of benefits asymmetry. So if we, in general practice, do a good job, and let's say we do everything right, keep good glycemic control, improve risk factors, reduce smoking and so forth, we actually get no benefit in general practice. The benefit actually accrues to the system. So there is a benefit to the hospital system. There is a benefit in terms of reduction of hospitalizations. In fact, there are some studies which do show, in fact, there's lots of studies which show this, that if you do a good job in general practice, there's reduced mortality and reduced hospitalizations. The problem, unfortunately, is that what that means is that there is actually no particular financial incentive for general practice to actually do that because there is nothing which comes back in general practice. But if we take it the other way and say, what if the hospital does a bad job? What if all of their patients have reduced PAM scores when they get discharged? What if they are at high risk of hospitalization? Who ends up having to do the work? And the answer is, for the most part, that responsibility then falls back to general practice. So again, this asymmetry of benefits is the problem. So one of the problems we have at the moment is we have a system where whatever good work is done in one part, the benefits flow to another person. So federal funding versus state funding. If we think of it in another way, whatever disbenefits might occur. So let's say that if we decide in general practice that we really just don't care and we're going to move to a volume-based system because let's face it, you probably get more financial reward if you just care less. Because if you care less and don't care about whether your patient has had a mammogram or had a cervical screening test, or has had their risk factors measured, you could probably see a lot more patients. And you could probably churn that through much more quickly. And no matter what else, you know, you would probably make more money at the end of it. Now, whether that's going to mean you get a better provider experience is another question. I would argue that you probably don't. But on the other hand, the whole problem is that the benefits or disbenefits of doing that actually accrue to someone else. So it either accrues to the next general practice or to the hospital in terms of increased hospitalization and or to the system in other ways, whether it be through loss of time, of work and so forth. So you know, we can actually measure these disbenefits. We know, for example, that in Western Sydney, the average diabetic patient costs around about $16,000 a year to treat. We know that if you're diabetic and you end up in hospital, if your diabetes is poorly controlled, you're more likely to have a poorer outcome and your total cost of care is increased as well. So this is the problem is that we don't have ways of making sure that those that those savings, if you like, or those benefits could then be churned back into the system to be used to make the system better. And so in a true value-based system, what we would be wanting to see is that everyone actually works to achieve a better outcome, but that those benefits which are accrued are reinvested in the system in ways to allow the system to work more efficiently. Can I interrupt again to to just say in New Zealand, that's a good example there. That's what the GPs there did. So they actually created these groups that showed these huge savings to the health system by joining together and making sure there was streamlining in medications and pathology, testing, etc. And they were able to then get the savings from that redirected into investment in 
primary care services. So there was this great encouragement to actually take responsibility for prescribing choice. So what medications do I prescribe and why? So that cost was taken into and making sure that you do investigations that count rather than doing a scattergun load of unnecessary tests on top of it. And because in hospitals, they can do that. They make the doctors accountable, they decrease the savings and they plow it back into somewhere else in the hospital. But general practice, no one knows. When I ask how much does a medication cost, I often have this blank look from, you know, the pharmaceutical company, for instance, and they'll give me the PBS cost. And I go, no, the actual cost to the healthcare system behind that, how much is our government subsidising it? so that, you know, I can know what of the medicines of each class is a better value for me to be prescribing if they're doing the same job, but I can save the government 50% by doing that. But there's no incentive because I certainly don't reap that benefit except as a taxpayer. And so that's, I suppose, and that, Charlotte, I think is the reason why we've got to look at the funding, but also at the systems. So because... Um, the New Zealand example is a fantastic example. I mean, using the accountable care organisations there, which take some control of regional pool funding. And I must admit, I'm a quite a big fan of regional pool funding because I think that if you do have the funding captured within a region, we can actually not only make sure that the funds are used in the most efficient way. And so whether that be at the community level, whether it's about hospital prevention, or in fact, moving those funds even beyond the traditional means. So thinking beyond general practice and actually saying, can we reduce, say, hospital uh, presentations by improving knowledge or improving assistance to young families, as an example. So if you have an area where you have a lot of need, sometimes you don't need a doctor, sometimes you don't need a nurse, sometimes you actually need someone else. But it's how can we mobilise the funding in order to make it used more efficiently? Isn't that what they said PHNs were supposed to be doing, you know, looking at the needs of the community and then, you know, providing sort of targeted interventions to deal with some of those issues? That's a yes and a no, Ash, because the trouble with the PHNs was they were never given a budget by which then you could reap benefits in what you saved or what you invested in. And there's a sort of a, an interesting thing, although they were asked to put out the contracts and make sure that a service was designed specifically for a community to meet a need, they weren't actually allowed to ever actually really commission what services were needed. So instead, the PHNs are given 50000 and told, go and deliver a mental health care service that does this, all right? And that's done from the department. It's not done from the PHN. And a very small amount of the money that PHNs get is what's called flexible funding, which is to do what you're talking about. But again, there's no way that that flexible funding in any way is large enough to do anything meaningful. And B, it's not actually aligned to cost savings. So if as a result of the flexible funding programs, you actually manage to save a whole lot of money, that money isn't in any way brought back into the PHN. That's exactly right. PHNs actually are in a position where they could do that, but they're not given the tools for the most part, so they can actually do that. And if we do look at this, if you were looking at how that pooled funding mechanism could work, 
and actually does work very well with a PHN and an LHD, which are both in alignment and happy to take on and share funding and risks, because there is there are always going to be risks involved with this. There has to be that acknowledgement that at the beginning, there has to be some skin in the game from both sides. But PHNs are very well placed to do it, but need to be given the license to be able to do it, if you like, need to be given the agency to be able to do it, and of course, the funding. Yeah, so I think once you can start to align a little bit more the that sort of cross-funding benefits analysis so that when you save money by not having hospitalisations that are generated in better care in general practice, that that money is somehow also streamed, not just sort of being into another hospital service, but actually back into investment in primary care. But at the moment, all the savings that we're generating in general practice just are to the state service and the state is not aligned with our funding, which is from the federal government. And so there's this sort of total catch-22 of I'm saving money for the state, but the federal government doesn't care two hoots that I'm doing that because they're funding me and they see me as being an extremely expensive part of their funding model. And it's interesting because from an on-the-ground perspective, when you talk about that asymmetrical benefit or disbenefit, I can just see how that plays out in clinical practice where as GPs or primary care providers, we can see what the LHD services aren't very good at providing or the gaps in their services and because of what we are, I guess, left to manage, you know, a lot of the time or, you know, services are missing and so we end up innovating in ways to to help support our patients or health consumers. And the opposite happens, you know, in the EDs and in the wards of the hospital or the the operating theatres, they see what we do wrong. And it's really interesting, like on both sides, there's this sort of compensatory behaviour where the LHD goes, oh, well, you know, or they might go, just as an example, oh, wounds are a problem. Okay, so we're going to create a wound clinic instead of potentially looking at the underlying problem there, which is that dressings in primary care make general practices lose money if someone can't afford to pay for that appointment. And so there's this sort of onflow to the the hospital system of people who can't get dressings in the community. And so then that cost is taken on and they create a whole new service. Or And the other thing happens where, you know, if there's no sort of mental health support, then GPs end up taking on that load a lot more for their patients. Rather than going, well, how can we look at both systems and make it more efficient? Because I, I can't imagine that sort of a nurse driving around to everybody's house is an efficient model of care. And I mean, that's an almost purposeful ignorance of the whole system because it's an exact example where someone is not taking into account the principles of efficiency and reduction of waste. So because those are classic examples. I mean, I can think of an example in Beck's part of the world where she used to work, where there was a really good program, a really nice general practice run program, which was able to demonstrate a sustained weight loss over a 12-month period which was achieved at the cost of $30 per kilo of weight loss. So it's an amazingly cost-efficient program. And I can tell you now, very happy to say that the cheapest we've managed actually managed to drive our costs down too when we measure on a per kilo basis for $60 per kilo. 
So this particular methodology showed a hugely more efficient mean. But then we compare what happened, which is that when an LHD sees there's a problem with obesity, they set up an obesity clinic, which sees a very small number of people at a very high cost with questionable long-term benefits. So this is where, again, there is just that lack of attention to the basic concepts of value. And instead, what's considered to be value by some, well, is just not what we should be thinking of as value. So it comes back to that question, value versus volume. It's not just a question of volume. It's actually a question of paying attention to value and having and all of us be mindful. And that includes LHDs and hospital services, which provide many services which are of questionable value. So that's where my pipe dream is, is that we could actually align our funding so that we could actually start making it that when we save money, everybody's happy, but that we also get the reinvestment back into primary care so that we want to actually save the money. Because, you know, I I have an absolute resonance of why GPs out there have got no incentive to do some of the systematize some of their care when there is no accountability for them and there's no incentive or benefit to them to do anything different from what they're doing at the moment. I think a lot of it is that in general practice we're so time poor and we're so starved of staff, which is the same thing as the time, that there isn't time to do these other things. So I mean I absolutely agree one of the things which we really need is to have some realignment of funding to allow those resources to be used in more efficient ways. And I will have to put a little bit of a plug in here for New South Wales Health, which has at least started playing around with the idea of collaborative commissioning. And collaborative commissioning programs are still limited, still only starting, but at least are actually starting. But it is funding, which is freed up from the general pool of funding at an LHD slash PHN level, which can be applied to problems within that region. So it is a bit of a start. And we are already in our practice. And I will have to admit, whenever I say we've got all these resources and everyone says, how do you get all of that? I will have to admit that we don't pay for it ourselves out of our own pocket because things like having access to integrated care nurses from the hospital is part of the LHD redirection of resources. The practice pharmacist who we have working with us is also funded through part of partly through that realignment of resources as well. But again, this is about being able to have shown in the first place that this sort of use of resources could actually lead to benefits in terms of reductions in hospitalizations, reduction in presentations uh, for certain cohorts of patients. So it's a process. You're just making us green and then you're cooking us in a pot. (laughs) (laughs) Well, green is sort of in at the moment, so I could say that. But let me say, perhaps we can use that as a way to, to say maybe if others and if we can push the funders of the system, which is basically going to be jurisdictional, to actually start thinking of putting funding at a regional level and allow it to be used more flexibly at by PHNs and MHDs, then we might actually be able to get something done. Before we open that can of worms, <laughs> I think it's probably time for us to wrap up for today so we can go on and enjoy our weekends. So I will start with clinical tip or resource from King. 
Okay, so my resource, it's not a new one, it's one that I have used before, but I'm not sure how many of us are familiar with this. And that is when we consider the concept that nutrition is such a big part of what we need to do and what we need to educate our patients of, it's that site, pennutrition.com, P-E-N nutrition.com. And this is a global resource for nutrition and practice. It's a very nice one because it's a little bit like many of those other resources we use for our medical work, which are evidence-based resources, except this one is about nutrition. And so this is where you go to, if you want to find out, is there any value in this diet? Is there value in this? Does this make a difference? And very importantly, you can actually recommend or recommend this one to patients because they can look at it, uh, have a look at the site and look up the questions themselves. So that's my resource for the week. Awesome. Beck? I am going to plug the New South Wales New Fellows have started their ongoing webinar series. So their second series on finance topics being an end of year focus. So if you missed the last one, the last one was on end of year financial tips and how to get yourself organized for the end of financial year. And that was taped and will be available to be listened to. And then in the next coming months, we have ones on investing organized as well. So something a little bit different for RACGP from the New Fellows Committee that we've enjoyed doing. ACT, New South Wales Committee for the Change Agent. (laughs) (laughs) And Charlotte? I think following on from our chat today, I'd get people, if they're interested in seeing a little bit more about value-based care and what New South Wales Health is doing, New South Wales Health has got a brilliant website that has got a whole lot of really useful information and resources around it. So if you actually just go to New South Wales, the health.newsouthwales.gov.au website and go to value-based healthcare, and on that they've also got a whole lot of stuff about the patient reported measures framework and what that might look like and an ability to actually make use of some of their systems if you are interested in your own practice. And all of those resources are free really encourage people who are interested in what that might look like for their practice and for their patient care to look at that site. I found it just by googling New South Wales Health Value-Based Care as well and just sort of came up straight away yeah. My resource is going to be related to Kings in that the Australian College of Sport and Exercise Physicians have worked with their UK colleagues to produce a website that helps medical or health professionals have active conversations around exercise. They've just launched the website. It's called Moving Medicine. So it's movingmedicine.com.au. And the coolest thing about it is it's got sort of consultation guides and it's specific. It's got things specific for different health conditions and it's got sort of evidence around the types of exercise that are beneficial for those conditions and it's also got tools for health professionals of how to have active consultations and they're based very much around the idea around motivational interviewing and how do you have a one-minute conversation or a three-minute conversation or a five-minute conversation and it also links people to local activities or organisations that might be near them and sort of websites that can connect them to organisations where they can help them get active. So it's a really cool resource and hoping to see it start popping up in the health pathways as well. Thank you so much for joining us again today. 
always interesting to talk to all of you, actually. You as well. It's been really interesting. I've enjoyed it a lot. Thank you for your time and thank you for having me.